Hello, my name is Leszek Jaszczewski. Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, a European Liberal Forum project. I hope you'll enjoy our program. Hello, welcome to Liberal Europe podcast. My name is Leszek Jaszczewski and my guest today is Mark Leonard, who is a co-founder and director of the ECFR, Council, European Council on Foreign Relations, uh, where you're sitting at the headquarters in, in London. And um, uh, Mark is um, the podcaster, podcaster as well. He is having a great podcast. If by any chance you don't know it yet, please um, tune in. This is The World in 30 Minutes. And also is the author of, of many great books, and the recent of which I just had the Polish translation. So if you are based in Poland, please do check the, um, check the nearest bookshop. And this is called The Age of Unpeace, How Connectivity Causes Conflict. Mark, thank you very much for welcoming me here and for being in our podcast. Thanks, it's a great pleasure. So it's, it's a very exciting book because, um, well, when one thinks about uh, who you are and who, who is the and, uh, and the organization that you're running, it is like epitomization of the real bar internationalist. And still you publish the book about the vices of connectivity. So are, is writing this book made you kind of diehard nationalist? No, but... The reason I wrote the book was because of a big clash between the, the world that I wanted to live in and the one that I found myself living in. And that led me to, to re-examine a lot of my prior convictions. And the trigger point for me was, was very much um, 2016 as a year, the year of Brexit, the year where Trump was elected, uh, both of which were, were sort of revolts against uh, the, the world of connected internationalism um, and what I realized through those sorts of processes is that though my own experience of the last few decades has been one where the binding together of the world through increased trade through integration through uh, new technologies has been an incredibly empowering and positive experience Uh, you know, 52% of people in the UK and enough people in the US to uh, elect Donald Trump president had a radically different interpretation of exactly the same events. And that led me to, to spend a lot of time trying to understand why the lived experiences of different people could be and should be so different. I, I'm not running away from my uh, enormous... Uh, emotional and political commitment to, to, to the European Union and to process of European integration, which has made my life immeasurably better than that of my parents, my grandparents and, and earlier generations um, in my family. But at the same time, um, it is very striking how all of the, the things which I've seen as, as, as being empowering and giving me opportunities have been seen as as creating threats and insecurities by other people. And anyway, after sort of digesting that shock, I then started to, to think uh, differently about the experience of the last few decades and to look at the dark side of, of connectivity. And I think for all the positive things that uh, our connected world has brought us in terms of wealth, in terms of new technologies, in terms of improved living standards, There are also uh, negative uh, developments which have brought people uh, 
new sense of insecurity, brought people into conflict with one another, and have have also uh, created a whole series of, of of new forms of instability in the world. And and that's really what my book is about. And I was wondering uh, how, in coming back to the title for a minute, uh, do you why did you feel you need to invent kind of like a new term? for the age of today in comparison, let's say, to the well, interwar periods or the first age of globalization? Do you feel it's essentially something else? Yeah, so I didn't invent the word unpeace. It's actually an old Anglo-Saxon word. Um, Popularized, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but I think what I was trying to capture with it was this disconnect between the sort of official account about where we were, which is to see the last 30 years as a period of uh, a golden age of peace where you didn't have war between great powers. And then the lived experience which people had, which was of an enormous amount of instability, of conflict, of unhappiness, uh, which was playing out both within our societies and between different countries. And, you know, my good friend Ivan Krastev wrote this wonderful column about the... Um, The, the war in Ukraine shortly after it started in February 2022, um, saying that he thought that a lot of people who lived in the um, in the 20s and 30s had thought that they lived in a post-war period and then discovered later on that, in fact, they were living in an interwar period. And he was saying that actually many people in our world would have the same experience. And actually... Um, My book is saying, actually, that's wrong. It's not just that the war didn't start on, on the 22nd of February because Ukraine had already been in a state of war for eight years before that. But it's the fact that even if this fighting war ends, it doesn't mean we're going to be in an age of peace again. Because actually, um, what we've seen is that lots of different conflicts are taking place between different powers, which might not fit a conventional definition of war where you have invading armies declaring war, you know, countries declaring war on each other, invading armies doing most of the fighting, and then them ending with a peace treaty. That that doesn't happen uh, very much. Even in Ukraine, that, that, that didn't happen. Um, but at the same time, they are fighting with each other in different ways, whether it's through uh, uh, cyber attacks, whether it's through manipulating uh, the global financial system, migration, all these different types of things. And the kind of metaphor I use in the book is of uh, marriage uh, that goes wrong, but where the couple can't get divorced. And I kind of say that, that, that geopolitics is a bit like that today. And just as in a marriage which goes wrong, it's the things which brought the couple together in the good times that become the, the weapons that they use to hurt each other in the bad times. So in a marriage, it's about who gets the, the pet dog, who gets the holiday home, but above all, who, who looks after the children and, and how you talk to the children mm. about what's going on. And in geopolitics, it is increasingly all of the different threads that bind the world together. So trading relationships being turned into sanctions, energy being turned into a weapon, um, internet being turned into a place for disinformation and cyber attacks. But even migration um, has been turned into a weapon. The free movement of people, the ultimate thing that was meant to be bringing the world together, we've seen that instrumentalized by, by different leaders. And it's not a coincidence that the Russians are attacking civilian centers and the 
civilian infrastructure of, of Ukraine rather than simply going after soldiers because what they're deliberately doing is driving millions of people from their homes in the hope not just of spreading terror in Ukraine, but also of, of putting political pressure on the countries that they're going to, such as Poland, which have uh, been incredibly generous in the short term. But the pressure that it puts on the country's um, you know, public services, on the housing market, on schools and hospitals and things like that is going to be quite large if this war carries on. Uh, and that is, that is a sort of political act as well. So uh, trying to continue your, um, your comparison, it seems that in the marriage of uh, China and Russia, uh, of, of um, Germany and Russia, Germans believe they can transform their partner, kind of similar ways of uh, United States in the, I think in the 90s about China. Do you think that this, um, this kind of, well, some of this relationship became toxic and that's what you're writing, that this is what gave you kind of revelation uh, to, to, you know, frame this in connectivity in a different way. Do you think that decoupling is, is the right way for US? And do you think that actually EU should try to do the same or actually the, the price is too high, especially when you think about a green transition, for example? Well, Europe is decoupling from Russia. And yeah. I think that's something that's that that seems inevitable. going to yeah. be not just inevitable, but irreversible. I think it's very hard to see how we could go back to the world before the 24th of February, whatever happens in this war. I don't think we're going to go back to where we were beforehand. Um, you know, as you said at the beginning, I'm an internationalist, so I actually think the world is better off if people have relationships with each other and if you have um, thick links. But the, the challenge is to structure those relationships in a way that they are not toxic. And I think um, one of the the difficulties we had, for example, in our energy relationship with Russia is that it was organized in a way that was too one-sided, too asymmetrical, so that Russia could use energy to blackmail and bully uh, other countries. And, um, you know, I think the lesson from that is not that we should never buy anything from countries that we don't love, but it's that we should never put ourselves in a position of, of dependence on a single <laughs> country with whom you have a difficult relationship. So actually, in some ways, the solution to um, uh, one-sided dependence is more relationships so that if one right. goes wrong, then you can diversify and you can hedge uh, your risks your right. by going to other ones. I, I think that that is increasingly what's happening. In the old days, um, you had these just-in-time supply chains, which were very fragile and were basically all about cost driving costs down as little as possible. And now people talk about just in case, you know. <laughs> so mm. you make sure that your supply chains are a bit more complicated so that you are not just focused on cost, but also on security of supply and that you can have different options if things go wrong. And that's in a way a small metaphor for a kind of bigger way of rethinking how all of our relationships work. But it is a very different sort of world because... The reason that this has happened is because we have nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons means that a war between uh, great powers is unthinkably dangerous. And the, the desire to conflict between great powers hasn't disappeared, but their ability to have wars in those conventional terms has disappeared as a result of nuclear weapons. So that's why this situation of unpeace is, is, is increasingly the case, that people are manipulating the, the ties that they have together because it's less dangerous and is less expensive than 
um, sending troops in. And and, um, and it's very interesting how, um, you know, even the war in Ukraine, which on, on one hand looks like a kind of old-fashioned war, it doesn't feel like a, like um, peace uh, superficially. I, I mean, in the book, I kind of argue, A, that one of the reasons it happened was because of connectivity going wrong and, and um, the resentment that... Putin felt about about the connection, the growing connections between Ukraine and Europe, creating a sense of anxiety, um, which led to this battle between the two connectivity processes, the Eurasian Economic Union and the European Union, eight years ago, um, and that that ends up um, going uh, wrong from a Russian perspective, uh, to the extent that he thought he was going to lose Ukraine forever, which is why he starts this tragic process of annexing Crimea and starting a war in, in eastern Ukraine, which has ramped up over over time and um, has now um, taken on uh, an even more dramatic form. But it's also true that the way that the war is being fought is, is very different from the Second World War or from earlier wars. It's very much a kind of war of unpeace. You know, the battleground is very important, but even the way that it's being fought in the battleground is very much about connections. I was with a Ukrainian minister for digital transformation recently, and he was talking about how they use apps in Ukraine to have a completely different type of, of situational intelligence. Ordinary people are, are loading up all sorts of things about where Russian troops are and things like that, which gives Ukraine a big technological advantage over Russia. But it's also using drones and UAVs. It's a very high-tech war. Technology is changing in the face of war um, there. But also, that's only one of the many battlefields in which the, the war is being waged. So, so from the Russian side, they're using you know, the manipulation of energy and uh, the creation of millions of, 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 of displaced people to put pressure on us. And on our side, incredible sanctions, attempts to restrict technology going to the Russians... So even as we focus on the battlefield and thinking about sending tanks and planes and other types of things, we're also just seeing that as one of many um, sites of conflict, um, many of which are not the sort of traditional um, uh, types of, 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 of war, which, you know, uh, were around, you know, during the Cold War or in the, in the Second World War. It's an odd situation where you both have it's like a time machine the 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 war in ukraine it both looks like it's taking us back to the 20th century but it's also very 21st century because of these these kind of connectivity elements right yeah we just uh well the 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 previous day there was a visit of president zelensky here in, in in london and well, actually, he didn't have to leave his bunker for, for, for one year, right? He, he, he was like a global leader thanks to connectivity and yeah. uh, putting pressure directly on, on, on European leaders. Well, well all the worldwide leaders. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, you, you write very well, your previous book was about China and you spent some time there. It's quite interesting how you write how China and US are trying to imitate each other and and are similar in ways in which we don't maybe think um, um, in an everyday basis. Can you elaborate on this, what, what you had in mind? So the conventional wisdom about the relationship between China and America is it's bad because the two countries are so different from each other. They're complete opposites. You know, the US is the ultimate capitalist country. China is a communist country. The US is the biggest developed country in the world. China is a has been a developing country. 
uh, you know, East and West, yin and yang, that they're like complete opposites of each other. China, the, uh, the producer country, the factory of the world, the US, the ultimate consumer, the consumer of lost resort. Um, so you have this sort of um, uh, sense that they're, they're, they're completely opposites. But, uh, and, uh, and many people think that that is why there's so much tension between the different countries. Democracy, dictatorship, obviously, um, being the most obvious difference between the two. Um, my argument is actually that China and America used to get on really quite well when they were completely opposites of each other. In fact, so well that people like Neil Ferguson talked about China and America having a single combined economy. He called it Chimerica or Chimerica. Yeah. Um, and that uh, there was actually an almost perfect complementarity between the Chinese and the American uh, uh, economies and societies, and they 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 uh, work together very very effectively. Um, one of the reasons that the relationship has become much less good is because China and America have been converging a lot, becoming much more like each other. Mm. And the more they become like each other, the more they hate each other, and the more tension there is between the two of them. Um, and, you know, that's happening. Uh, so what you have had recently is a process where the links between the two countries have been going up and up and up. The levels of knowledge have been uh, expanding exponentially, mutual knowledge. And the two countries have been subtly kind of mirroring each other. So China has tried to, to go up the value chain to become more of a high-tech um, uh, economy, um, has developed a lot of different internet platforms um, and um, is you know modernizing its military is doing all sorts of things which which, which the US has done as a sort of great power um, and on the other hand the US has been becoming much more like China it used to believe very much in free markets now you have the the IRA the inflation reduction act which is a massive industrial uh, policy with enormous subsidies going into the market to kind of mirror what china's doing in terms of developing its its green technology and other things um the the us used to have kind of um mainly a kind of hub and spokes approach in asia which was like about military bases etc now it's trying to develop economic relationships with, with people. It's talking about kind of friendshoring and other kinds of things like that. Um, and anyway, what you're seeing is a sort of gradual process where the two countries are mirroring each other more and more. And you're going from a position where they were complementary to one where they are becoming more and more similar and more and more hostile to each other. And this there's a sort of spiral of, uh, of integration um, which is leading to convergence, which is leading to competition, which is leading, which is leading to conflict. Um, and uh, one of the people who really helped me see what was going on, uh, ironically, was was uh, Peter Thiel, the the um, American investor and tech entrepreneur, um, who, when he was a graduate student, was obsessed with the French um, uh, theoretician René Girard, who has this theory of, um, of what he calls mimetic desire and his basic idea is that when um, uh, so he's sort of adapting Freud but he's basically saying uh, typically when two people are after the same thing what they tend to do is they tend to copy each other and that process of copying creates a sense of convergence with each other to the extent that the thing that they both desire 
in this case, to be the number one country in the world is less important than the rivalry between the two. Um, anyway, it was this obsession with, um, with, with Girard, which partly inspired Peter Thiel to invest in, uh, $500,000 in Facebook, mm-hmm. uh, which is the ultimate place where people compete, <laughs> uh, copy each other and compete yeah. with each other. Um, which made him a, a billionaire. Red um, French philosophers, <laughs> let's say. Um, but but uh, he was sort, sort of arguing that, in a way, the, the US-China relationship can be seen like that as well, as a set of mimetic doubles where you have this, this spiralling. Um, and for me, it's partly um, a reflection of, of something which... Because my book is essentially arguing that this process of connecting the world and creating much many greater links both gives people a motive um, for, for, for conflict with each other and an opportunity to. We talked a bit about the opportunity with all these new weapons that are emerging, but the, the Girard example, I think, also shows why you get a motive. The other big kind of thinker who helped me understand some of these dynamics um, is Polish, actually, um, uh, Zygmunt Bauman, who mm. has done a lot of work on uh, how connectivity and technology um, is leading to to uh, to comparisons between different players and and he has this sort of theory that about how um, um, our ability to compare ourselves to other people in the world leads to a, a, a very strong sense of resentment and discontent which creates uh, conflict and he talks about how you almost get this kind of free-floating discontent in the kind of internet age because People used to compare each other to their neighbours or to their um, or to their parents, uh, but now in the internet age, everyone can compare themselves to the most privileged people in the world, and therefore their own life can't possibly compete with what they see, and that leads to a lot of frustration and and, and discontent. And in fact, it was another Polish person who, who made me see this in, in a long time ago in in a Polish context where I was trying to find out why Tusk lost the election to mm. Kaczynski um, when the economy seemed to be doing really well. And he was he uh, explained, Alex, Alex, Alexander Smoller, who was saying that the reason was because Polish people, uh, young Polish people were not comparing themselves to their own prospects five or ten years ago or to their parents, but to other Poles who'd gone to the UK, to Germany, to other sorts of countries, and that that had... Uh, had, had made them unhappy with their own situation and that that resentment from the people who'd been literally left behind um, was what the Law and Justice Party tapped into in order to, to, to build their political uh, platform. And, you know, that had a lot of resonance with me and I think is, you know, yet another example of how connectivity and these connections and, uh, and integration that we have actually has... Uh, quite profound implications for for how people feel um, about their relationships with others, both um, other countries, but also uh, can lead to new tensions within our societies. Uh, I feel we kind of only scratched the, <laughs> the, the ideas that you want about your book. Do you also quote, well, kind of a Polish origin, uh, well, I would say obscure, at least in Poland, Henry Teufel and... Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, people who are constructing this theory of of social comparison. Very interesting. And if you want to know why Chinese person and American person looking at the aquarium sees it completely differently with fish, (laughs) see completely different things also, please do 
uh, read the book. I have the la very last question um, to, 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 to end. Mm, you mentioned, uh, well, populists, and uh, I'm wondering to what extent do you think that um, in this world where liberals seems to be, well, liberals, but I mean, basically, global elite, Davos, whatever you want to call this, this kind of person, global internationalist, try to find the justification for external coercions, like coercion, necessity, whatever you want to call it, climate, migration, and global economy. And populist seems to be offering the, the illusion of choice. I also very much like what you, how you describe the decolonization of Great Britain, you know, under Boris Johnson. Another, you know, we don't want to give spoilers, like too many spoilers to people. But uh, do you think that, uh, well, liberals, internationalists, they should try to play this game of populists to, to play this illusion? I would say this is illusion or, uh, and carry out with these justifications or, they should try, or actually, they should try to find justification for no alternative. You actually try to offer a solution. They should say that there are, there is possibility for rules and changing these necessities in a way. Uh, do, you, do you think this is really possible in this interconnected world to, to make rules? Well, actually, making rules also means that some, it depends, I mean, someone wins, someone loses, right? So like, depending on the game that you choose to play. Do you think it's really possible? So I think the, the big challenge for liberals is that traditionally we've said that this is a win-win situation in global integration, free trade, free movement. It's a it's it's good for everyone. Pie is getting bigger, yeah. The, the pie is getting bigger and everyone's better off. And what happened in 2008 with the global financial crisis is that there was a growing awareness in lots of different places that actually they were losers as well as winners. Even if they're not actually losing, they haven't won as much as other people have. And that relative um, difference between the people who did really well out of it and those who didn't do as well became strong enough to, to create a huge sense of resentment and frustration amongst large numbers of people, enough people to vote for Brexit, for Trump, the Law and Justice Party in Poland. Um, and the question is, how do you fight back? People like Emmanuel Macron, they said, well, you know, what we need to do is to, to, the new split is not between left and right, it's between open and closed. And I think if you make the split between open and closed societies, then you will lose. People will go for mm. the closed societies, they'll go for building walls. So the challenge for liberals is how do you make openness feel safe for the people who, for whom it's become risky and a source of vulnerability. Um, and I think the way that you, you want to try and make it feel safe is to make them feel that they are, that people are controlling what's happening, that is that is managed. So I think the split should not be between open and closed, but between managed and unmanaged interdependence. And managed interdependence means that you can actually be honest about the fact that there are winners and losers, and then you can try and redistribute some of the gains from the winners to help the losers. And that's the sort of big picture idea of what I call, uh, you know, disarming connectivity. So trying to de-risk it, make it less kind of risky. And that expresses itself in different ways in different areas. If it's about um, uh, immigration, for example, um, it's very clear that typically, if you've got open borders and free movement, that it's very good for the map for the overall economy. But it can be bad for wages in particular sectors. It can put pressure on places where people move to. So, if you 
track where people are going to and, and think about that. You can put in safeguards for salaries in sectors which are being pushed down. You can tax the benefits from, from, from free labour markets and then invest the money in more school places, in more hospitals, in more housing to make sure that other people can benefit from it as well. The same is true you know, with free trade. Obviously, that creates winners and losers. If you are reinvesting the extra revenue that comes in in helping prepare people for, for losses... The most difficult areas are obviously to do with cultural change and people's identities, and that's in a lot of the areas which liberals have found themselves on the wrong side of, of public opinion. Um, but again, there, you know, I think there are ways of, of, of showing that you care about um, culture, and and you know, it's not necessarily um, an intuitive thing for liberals who are often portrayed as being you know rootless cosmopolitans, um, but. Uh, I think if you want to stop people becoming nationalists, opting for simple populist solutions, then it's incumbent on liberals to show that you actually care about the people who are on the wrong side of, uh, of these sorts of processes and to find ways of reassuring them and of winning their consent and bringing them along with it. And that then means that you can have a much more sustainable uh, kind of openness um, if you don't do that, the danger is always that it will all get overturned and that you'll get people like Donald Trump elected who end up, um, you know, going for the complete opposite of, of, of what liberals want and introducing illiberal measures in ways which are, are really destructive, often also for the people that they're designed to appeal to. Um, so I think that's really the, the challenge for, for, for liberalism is is giving people a sense of agency and showing that liberalism isn't simply about, you know, untrammeled forces of capitalism, uh, of cultural change, of, uh, of technological change, which is going to destroy a lot of the things that people care about. And um, I, I think that's the big lesson of recent years, actually, from a lot of people um, on, on the liberal side, that they're both having to find a different language to talk about what's going on, but also to start engaging with some of these more complicated issues. And, you know, I think in some ways it's about going back to liberalism um, uh, rather than being stuck in a kind of neoliberal or libertarian paradigm, which is where uh, liberals have often found themselves in the last couple of decades. Um, but it is a, it's, a big, it's a big change. But if it's not embraced, then I fear that we could end up with a, a much more illiberal world. Perhaps, uh, perhaps one of the uh, one of the first steps to to feel secure is to understand the situation in which we're in, and that's why I, I suppose a lot of insecure liberals can read your book and feel a little bit of peace. Paradoxically, edge of one on peace, Mark Leonard. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks a lot. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing and want to help spreading the liberal values. Please give us a five-star review and share with your friends.